Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or physician, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to yet another episode of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast one that we teased in the prior episode when we talked about the top four challenges of building a group practice. I'm gonna take challenge number one and confront it head on today. That's right, not taking an income hit when you set out on the journey to do it. You know it'll be a note-taking episode to get your pad and pen ready and brew another wonderful cup of that Mila coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. Thank you so much for joining me again on the show today. This is sort of a, uh, I guess, part part two <laughs> of maybe a five-part series around the challenges of building a group practice. I find that when I speak in front of groups, take calls, respond to emails, texts, and everything else that... Building a group practice is still probably the number one thing on the top of the mind of most uh, traditional solo dentists. And that doesn't matter if they're late stage in their career or earlier stage in their career. It seems as though everybody knows somebody who's built a group practice. Some have done so successfully. Some may have even sold the business successfully and pocketed a bunch of money doing it. But everybody seems to be interested in the trials and tribulations, the ins and outs, the upsides and the downsides of building a group practice. And well, they should be. You know, we think about the market that we're in right now, and it's everybody's focused on the cost of debt funds. But really, uh, we've been in a rising cost uh, environment for a number of months, uh, driven by inflation, certainly, which the Fed is trying to get under uh, under control, and driven by the rise of wages predominantly. All of us who are operating small businesses have seen the cost of operations rise. For those of you who are running group uh, running uh, traditional healthcare practices, uh, many of you are are facing challenges around things like insurance reimbursement or attracting new patients or um, sometimes a case, a declining case acceptance rate and some things like that. And these aspects tend to put a a I don't want to say a cap, but it's a limitation around the growth potential in terms of revenue in the business. And when you when you confront that coupled with a rising cost environment, that hits the business owner right in his or her back pocket. And let's face it, running a small business uh, is challenging in all ways, shape, manners, and forms. And you know the government doesn't make it easy on you, and the competitive landscape of the the business that you choose doesn't make it easy uh, either. It doesn't matter if you're running a healthcare services business or a consulting business or a widget factory or anything else in between. So all of us sort of confront the same challenges. When we think about building a group practice, I would tell you that if we're having this conversation five to eight years ago, the, the primary driver for people wanting to build a group practice is to sell it. 
um, which is fine, but I think that creates challenges in and of its own right. But, you know, many people were building for exit. Um, I don't think that's the case anymore. Yes, there are some people who've built successful group practices and they want to transact them and some that are in the in the growth phase of building something that they they want to take some chips off the table for, for sure. But it, it, more and more of the calls that I take, the conversations that I have are, are around people building businesses for the long term. It could ultimately be a legacy business, even for their kids who might be going through dental school. But a lot of these people are not interested in building a business directly built for exit in the short term. They are wanting to build a big business that is not dependent upon their clinical skill set for its survival uh, and being able to have uh, multiple locations that uh, generate larger volumes of revenue and also have the opportunity to generate some level of cost synergies maybe not an outright headcount reduction which is your biggest cost but it could be in negotiating powers uh, with supply companies or labs or um, professional services like legal and accounting uh, employee benefits um, if you offer those to your employees you know things along those lines where you can take some of the the incremental costs out of the expense structure of the business and expand the margin on the bottom line these businesses also have the opportunity obviously when you have multiple locations to to be able to to negotiate some level of preferential insurance reimbursement and or recapture some specialty revenues as well. So it could be a combination of all things that leads an entrepreneur to conclude that, hey, I, I may be better off with four or five locations uh, in terms of security of, of income, that is, uh, versus just having one uh, under four walls and a roof. Uh, and I think there's a lot of credence to that. And I think that seems to be more of the the type of conversation that I'm finding myself getting into with more and more people these days. So hopefully some of you in the audience uh, might be able to relate to it. So let's talk about or dig deeper into uh, the number one or, or the first challenge um, that people confront when they are building a group. And again, I touched on this in the prior episode at a high level on all four of these, but I'm going to dig deep into the, the first one I alluded to. And that is the, the your personal transition, usually from the largest clinical producer in the business uh, to a, a leadership administrative type of a role, maybe not outright, uh, but certainly a, a transition where you're freeing yourself up from clinical responsibilities to find locations to buy or build, to recruit associates to come work for you, to negotiate cost structures with third parties, to lead the business um, as, as a true CEO. We just hosted a conference a month ago in Phoenix or Scottsdale called uh, uh, transitioning uh, from clinician to CEO. And we named it that for a reason. Um, so what does this look like? Uh, the first thing, and, and I, I go through a, a decent amount of this with our, our, our catalyst um, project uh, students over about six weeks, but we certainly dig deep into this one early on. But it is uh, really about gaining an assessment for your lifestyle. Um, and it sort of sounds like an odd place to start because we don't typically start many of our conversations there. 
I will tell you that we spend a little bit of time around this in discovery day sessions with people uh, and certainly in our consulting offering. But here's the here's the principle and the, the point behind all of it. First things first, if you're going to build a group practice I, or if you want to build a group practice, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you've probably got a successful solo practice. Nobody looks to scale failure. All right. So probably everybody I'm talking to in this audience, whether you're a dentist or other physician, probably has a successful uh, initial practice. And when I say successful, I mean, it cash flows pretty good. Uh, you're able to do a lot of um, various uh, types of, of clinical dentistry and some expanded uh, clinical functions, obviously, um, and, and treatment. Um, your case acceptance is probably very, very high. Your control over the staff is probably pretty good. You know, it's a it's a business built around your personality. Uh, nothing wrong with that. And and you are the straw that stirs the drink and what makes that practice successful. None of us do what we do for free. And when you are successful financially from an income standpoint, we all like the finer things in life. I'm no different than you. All right. And this is where we got to we got to get out of we got to take our business hat off and we got to put our our personal family and and spousal hat on for a few minutes here. So when we make a lot of money doing what we do in our business and we're because it's a solo practice and we're pulling all the income out of the business to to fund our lifestyle we have nice houses. We might have more than one house. We might have um, a house at the beach or a house in the mountains. We may um, have some nice cars. Um, we may have kids in private school and country club memberships, and we may take trips around the world and we may eat in really nice restaurants and, and on and on and on. And there is certainly nothing wrong with any of that. And when we do that, it is important for us to understand of that expense structure on the home front that gives us such great satisfaction and fulfillment for the lives that we've created for ourselves and for our family. How much of that is in a fixed structure in terms of debt or expense and how much of it is variable? Because what you find is that your, spent, your personal spending tends to rise to the level of your income. And that is not unusual, certainly not unique to dentistry or healthcare service businesses. It's a fact of life. It's probably part of living in the United States, candidly. So when our spending rises to the level of our income, our personal lifestyle is usually pretty dependent upon that level of income being generated from our primary business. When you hear me say you don't have any margin for error on the home front, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And this is a scenario where um, it's sometimes it's it's easy to make discretionary cuts that don't add up to a whole heck of a lot in terms of expenses, but it's real hard to cut fixed cost structures, taking kids out of private school, selling the beach house, um, not buying a new car every other year, things like that, right? Canceling the country club membership or your Netflix sub subscription, God forbid. So it's things like that, that we have to take a hard look at in terms of what our real expense structure is. And if we're, if we have an expense structure on the home front that is not 
calibrated to the 99th percentile of the income that we derive out of our business, now we're starting to create some level of margin for error. And here is where that plays a, a primary and direct role into your growth strategy. As you start to look for additional practices to acquire uh, and associates to recruit, um, and as you start to network in the community, you are going to be spending more and more time away from the chair. When you do that, it is for what we call business development purposes that don't have a uh, an ROI in, in the short term. It's a longer term ROI that helps you build a bigger business. You have to be able to do all of that, but it ain't going to pay off right away. It's not like sitting down with somebody and presenting a treatment plan uh, and and you know, having them accept it, then scheduling the crown for next week. All right. That's pretty short term ROI. You're talking about recruiting an associate that might not pay off for a while in terms of just recruiting them, but then you got to get them up to speed in terms of their clinical skill development and integrating with the team and everything like that. So the transition from clinician to CEO is going to be a bumpy one. It's going to be bumpy because it's outside of your comfort level. It's outside of your skill set that you uh, went to, to dental school to, to learn how to do. Um, but it's what the future of the business is going to be really based upon because a multi-location group cannot be dependent upon your clinical skill set alone. So it's a very important role to transition into. It's an important role to, to be um, intentional and proactive about for sure. But as you start to transition away from the chair, the work, the clinical work doesn't go away magically. There are still needs of patients that have to be addressed, but now you're not going to be there, you know, four days, four full days a week to provide those clinical services. And you're going to be paying somebody to perform those services in your absence. So this is where the rubber starts to meet the road. When you start paying an associate to do the one day worth of clinical work that you're no longer doing, that means two things. One, the, the work is still getting done, hopefully at a high level, uh, but it's income that they are now earning that you are not. And if you are not earning that level of income, there's only so much free cash flow coming out of these businesses. The question that you have to confront is, if I take an income hit, to pay somebody to do some of the work that I'm no longer doing, what's the margin for error on the home front that I can sustain? And that's where we get into trouble transitioning out of our lead clinical role and um, into a CEO role when the CEO role doesn't pay as well as the clinical role does, but you have basically fixed costs on the home front that can't be massaged without dramatic upheaval. And this is something that catches many people uh, unawares, both from a financial standpoint, but candidly from an emotional standpoint, too. Um, you think that there's plenty of dollars to go around, but I would tell you nine times out of 10, there is not. And this is something where we want to be uh, intentional and proactive about this type of transition. And, and we want to start planning for it you know, a year in advance, if we can, um, to squirrel away cash, to, to um, lighten some of the expense load on the home front, to really, to really get analytical and objective about it, to figure out what that dollar impact is going to be. So 
the, the next thing I would tell you is that, again, if I can go back to my original um, premise that all of you are operating successful solo practices, for those that are in solo practices, you're, you're operating successful businesses and you are probably you are probably what I would almost classify as a super producer. And what I mean by that is, again, your case acceptance rate is probably 100%. And you have the ability to do um, you know, clinical dentistry beyond just what I would call bread and butter dentistry. Um, and, and that's a great thing um, because you've taken all the CE, you've learned how to use all the advanced digital technology, um, and, and really your productive capacity is exemplary. It is not realistic to assume that somebody you hire who is either directly out of school or maybe out of a, an initial failed associateship, it's not realistic for you to assume that that person is going to be able to step into your shoes and be able to replicate the clinical skills that it's taken you a lifetime to master. If, if they can, consider it a bonus and you are a genius when it comes to recruiting. That is the exception to the rule. What we typically see is that as people start to transition, they think that, um, you know, they're, their clinical collections are probably going to fall a great degree because they're they're now working three days instead of four. So it's not, I mean, you take some hours away. It's natural to see a downturn, but all too often they assume that the uh, new associate's going to be able to step directly into their shoes and not miss a beat. And that ain't the case. I will tell you, I've seen in multiple instances, the person uh, who transitions from, let's say four days down to three, somehow magically gets more efficient uh, and they don't see their their total collections dropping by 25%, it's probably more akin to like 10 to 15%. They, they end up doing more in less time. So there is some level of, of efficiency gains and you know uptick without necessarily adding additional hours. Uh, and that's not unusual to see, but you, you don't maintain 100% of the level of collections in three days that it took you four to generate previously. I've never seen that before. So this is something that we really need to think about. And we really need to um, uh, be proactive as it relates to planning for that transition, not just from a productive capacity with an associate, but what it means to us on the home front. Um, if you're going to build a group practice, it goes without saying that somebody has to lead it. And, and if you're the founder of the business, that someone is going to be you. But you can't really, you can't really do that while practicing clinically full-time. It's hard to lead from behind the chair, in other words. Uh, so this is a natural transition for people to, to make. Some of them just you know, tend to make it and, and not think twice about it and suffer some repercussions uh, along the way. And some of them live to tell the tale and some of them end up going back into to working clinically full time and trying to do all of the above, and I don't, I don't know that that's what your uh, desire is, um, but I, I think the key thing for you to understand in this initial phase, at least, is that every entrepreneur who builds a group practice takes an income hit initially. The question is, 
how, how much of an income hit and how long is it going to last? And that's the, the culmination of, of this podcast that when we itemize the potential income hit to the founder in his or her transition, the next thing we, we, we want to understand what the potential income hit could be and get prepared for it. Yes, that is true. But the other thing we've got to solve for is, okay, if that's the case, what's the the impact that now this newly minted CEO has to make on the business? And, and what I mean by that is, once again, we're going to quantify it. If you are transitioning away from the chair and it costs you $40,000 in, in personal income, potentially, well, how can we derive an additional $40,000 out of the growth of the business and expanding the profitability of the business. So now it's not just the personal transition we're making. It's not just the implication on the home front that we have to address, but it is also the expected revenue generation we've got to create in fairly short order, as well as probably some level of expense reduction to expand the bottom line margin of the business. That is not easily done. Um, I talk about it like it is, but I think we would all fully acknowledge that it that it it is not easily achieved. But when you know the number you got to hit, at least you know the target you're shooting for, and that's half the problem. When people make this type of a personal transition and they they don't quantify the impact of their personal transition, or they don't qualify the impact that they have to make on the business, now they're just kind of flying blind, grabbing at straws, and panic sort of sets in. Because once again, there's not enough cash sloshing around in these businesses to satisfy all of the above. So when you do make the transition, you got to look at what the potential impact is. You got to be fully aware of what you might be able to, some changes you might be able to make on the home front. And then you've got to look at the expense structure of the business and potential revenue generation opportunities, combination of all of the above. And we'll get into growth strategy on a subsequent podcast. But suffice to say, once you know the numbers behind all of it, both personally and for the business, it becomes a little bit easier to solve for it. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying, relatively speaking, it adds clarity. And that's important to understanding that the impact that you really want to make on the business. So I hope this starts to kind of sync together for you, S-Y-N-C, together for you, because all of all of these components in this initial transition are uh, predictable, they're quantifiable, and if you have clarity around them, then you're you're more apt to be able to survive them and get into less trouble along the way. So once again, key points here are really how much margin for error do you have at home? And can you quantify that from an income versus expense uh, base? How quickly do you want to transition uh, away from the chair to take on more of a leadership role? Nobody goes from four days a week down to zero in short order. Um, it's really a gradual process that is probably going to take you at least a year, sometimes closer to two, or maybe even longer than that. And that's okay. How much of an income hit can you afford to take when you do start to replace yourself, no matter how gradually it may be. And once again, the the big overarching question we need to solve for that can't be less, uh, left unaddressed is what's the marginal impact that you got to make on the business to cover it? And if you have eyes wide open around all that, 
and you can quantify it. Now you know the future that you're trying to solve for. You can have confidence in doing the right things and the right steps and really creating the initial transition to building a group practice and doing it quite successfully. So hopefully that makes uh, sense to uh, everyone um, in, in the audience. Some of you uh, that I've spoken to recently are, are you know, in those earlier stages of, of building a group. And it's certainly exciting to see. Um, and when people ask me around the, the challenges that I see with uh, working with so many clients, this is really a big one that I don't think gets talked about nearly enough, but it is um, monumentally important. And like I say, it's um, usually fairly avoidable too. So hopefully giving you a couple of things to to consider along the initial phases of your journey. Obviously, if you've got questions around this or any other aspect of building a group practice, or you're interested in uh, looking at a potential discovery day to dig through this and any of the other um, uh, three to five year outlook for yourself and your business. Um, those are always a lot of fun times for me, DeWalker and and Mark Flock hosting most of those discovery days. And for those who are uh, interested in the, the Catalyst project uh, that we ran a, a mini class for a couple of months ago that was received really, really well, we are going to do another one of those um, probably starting on or around February 1st. I'm still hammering out some details on that and some uh, information will be uh, forthcoming, but I don't have anything uh, really beyond that just yet. So keep your powder dry. Um, hopefully there'll be a, a seat for you, um, but certainly look forward to um, any of the interactions we're fortunate enough to get. And I certainly appreciate all of you being in the audience and sharing the accolades that you do uh, on behalf of our podcast. We work really, really hard on our content here at Polaris. And I think it separates us from a lot of other competitors in the market space, certainly a lot of other podcasts in the market space. And I really appreciate uh, the compliments we get. And I would encourage you, uh, if you value the, the podcast, to share it with your friends. Um, that's the way we build our audience as well. And I certainly appreciate you being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.